Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalab. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Our first email comes in from Mike. Mike says, hi, Noah. I've been a tinkerer in ham radio and Linux for since ever. I'm proud to say that my house has been Linux only for six years. I'm about to purchase a rural property and security is always on my mind. I can easily set up cameras and monitoring at the house, but I would like to also monitor the front gate a quarter mile away from the house. A low bandwidth option would be just intrusion monitoring, but I would really like to have a live video feed or at least a still image transmission to monitor and record activity. I've listened to your episode, specifically the one on WISP technology, but I don't think that's going to work for me. The quarter mile stretch is a heavily wooded area uh, and has large elevation changes. So any wireless solution would have a lot of obstacles to penetrate. A wired solution uh, appears to break the bank. Plus, an Ethernet run is only good to about 100 meters or 300 feet from what I've read. I've been reading up on a single mode fiber optic line, which appears to do the job, but it still prices my project at about $600 to $1,000 for a direct burial cable for just one or two cameras at the gate. I don't have shore power at the side of the gate, but I plan on creating a solar battery array so I will have power available. Can you think of any technologies, wired or otherwise, that may help me and get a cell signal out to the gate? I've considered having a thing subscription and a small data feed of activity through the internet, but I'm tied to a monthly payment uh, for my solution. I want to own it myself. Uh, I think you can see where I'm going here. And of course, I absolutely can, Mike. Um, so you've got a couple of options. Really, truthfully, the best option is to just suck it up and, and bury the fiber. And I'll, I'll offer this piece of advice. If I plan to stay there five or more years, I'd probably go ahead and bury the bury the fiber. And if you weren't going to be there for, if you're going to be there in less than five years, then don't bother with it. Um, the reason for that is, uh, that's not really that much money in the in the long uh, in the long term of things, and it opens you up to so many other technical options. Right at that gate, what if you ever want to automate the gate opening and closing, or what if you want to uh, add uh, the ability for an intercom so people can 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 talk back? Um, in addition to just the cameras, I mean, there's all sorts of things that I might want to put out if I had. Um, entrance to the property and it was a significant distance from where my actual house is. Um, so if it were my, if I were my house, I'd just pay the money to and suck it up and go and do it. Um, but if, if you're not going to stay there, then it doesn't make any sense. Now, one thing you could do in the event that you're saying you're just there temporarily and you just need to be able to keep an eye on things for a little while, um, you could go back to analog cameras. Um, I, it's, it's not often that we recommend that, but in this particular case, you're going, there's a lot of analog cameras that have wireless transmitters, and those analog cameras are because they're 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 over a uh, it, it's it's a it's non-directional radio wave, um, unlike the high frequency, site to site radio links like Ubiquity that you've ruled out. 
those might be a better option for getting a, a, a slightly longer distance. Now, the downside it comes with all the bad things about analog cameras, right? Every one of those, um, you don't have a way to get it into an IP and VR. You, it's difficult to you know, view remotely, those kinds of things. Axis does make an IP converter. And so what you could do is if you can find a, a wireless uh, camera transmission technology that works for you, but the issue is then you want to get it and have all of the features of a digital camera. And again, we're trying to do this kind of on the budget side. We go on eBay, we look at one of these Axis IP converters, and it will take a standard analog video feed and turn it into an IP camera that then you can manage just like you would manage the rest of your IP cameras. And then that little part is different uh, from the rest of your IP camera system, but then going forward, um, everything else is standard, and, and that little access box kind of makes the transition. So I'll, I'll have a link if I can find it. If there's one for sale right now on eBay, I'll, I'll just link uh, to you to that. But I think you could probably do that for a little cheaper than it's going to cost you to, to bury fiber. But again, if it was me, I'd probably cut, uh, go ahead and bury the fiber. The other thing you could do, you ruled out the WISP option, and I can understand why, but one other way that you could kind of get around that, assuming that you're comfortable with solars and batteries, which it sounds like you are, uh, you could uh, kind of play hopscotch and have a and, and do more than one site-to-site radio. Uh, one of the WISPs that I had the opportunity to tour, that's how they built their infrastructure. And so um, they would get where, as far as they could line of sight, and then they'd put a switch, and then they'd put two radios, and then they'd go to the next line of sight. And we actually replicated that. Uh, at a car, car dealership and basically said, okay, well, we need to be able to get out to here and then from here we can see there. And so that's another way you can do it. Um, I suspect very quickly you're going to exhaust the amount of money you would have spent just uh, bearing uh, fiber. So I kind of come back to that. But a couple different ideas for you. Maybe you can think of a creative, maybe you can cut some trees down and kind of split the difference. I'm not sure. Uh, our second email comes in from Richard. He says, Dear Noah, thank you for a fantastic show. Your show, among a handful of other podcasts, have been instrumental in my journey as I don't have anyone to ask about Linux. In 2016, I experimented with different distros, eventually to fall in love with Fedora, running at KDE is my desktop. It's now become my daily driver. I ran a Raspberry Pi as a Kodi box for a while. I also took your advice on running Sailfish OS on my home phone, which I love. I figured that's a good next step for me to learn about Linux servers. But I don't have any technical background. I came to Linux strictly for ideology ideological reasons. It's different to know where to start. My questions to you would be, what's a good first project to learn about Linux servers? Should I rent a WM online or is it best to have my own hardware? Uh, should I first learn about security before attempting to self-host anything? Or are there any books or resources you recommend for non-technical people? Best uh, regards, Richard. So I'll start with the disclaimer that everybody learns differently, right? And so for you, it might be books. For some people, it's tutorials. For me, it's always been hands-on. I want to play with the technology. You give it to me. Let me see it. Let me see how it works. Let me knock on it. And then I experiment and, and I find out what I like. Um, and, and, and it is what I would recommend. I think that's the fastest way to, to acquire a new skill. I also think it builds a lot of uh, um, subtle intuition about technology that you're not necessarily going to pick up from, uh, from, from reading a book or, you know, or, or watching somebody else have hands-on experience with a piece of technology. And the good news about this is, Richard, it's so available, right? You can literally purchase a Raspberry Pi and get started on that, and there are some amazing things you can do. You can set up Home Assistant, which is no more difficult than just flashing an image onto the uh, onto an SD card reader. It's a single command or a single application that you can run on your existing Windows or Mac OS box. And uh, from there, you'll have a Raspberry Pi. And you can learn the basics of 
hey, I want to back up my data. I want to back up my configuration. And this is all at this point is happening in a web UI. And so it makes it a little bit easier on you to get started. And, and you, you, it forces you to think through some of the troubleshooting steps. I've plugged this Raspberry Pi machine in. Now I have to log into it. I wonder what the IP address is. And Home Assistant kind of eases that a little bit for you. Um, the other thing I'd recommend, anytime somebody says, I, I, I want to get into managing anything, the first thing I tell them to do, make sure you know how to log into your router and make sure you're comfortable um, running around in there. because even if we're trying to learn Linux servers and system administration, networking is such a massive portion of that. And uh, so much of your networking environment is going to be controlled inside of your router. You're going to want to make sure that you have that open. Um, and then start solving your own problems. Um, this is kind of the way that that I, I built AltaSpeed Technologies was we started solving problems and, and the solutions that we were coming with uh, up for the, the my employer at the time uh, were working better than the solutions that we were getting from Microsoft. And we started to look and say, oh, this works better with open source. Uh, and the way that we found that was we started solving our own problems. And there are lots of people that are doing this, that are hosting this stuff and, and trying this themselves. And if you look around, uh, Nextcloud is a great example of this, right? They eat their own dog food. They're all running Nextcloud. And so when something doesn't work in Nextcloud, uh, it gets fixed right away. And so it's not, it shouldn't surprise anybody that when you install Nextcloud, about how you would expect the first time you're running a server to work, uh, that's about how Nextcloud does. It gives you a little list of things that you want to make sure that you're doing. Um, it takes security in mind and then guides you and says, hey, make sure to do these things, make sure not to do these things. Um, there's, If you're deploying with containers, some of that's going to already be done for you. And so there's there's a lot of ways to, to, to break into this without having to take it all on um, at once. But uh, if you're looking for, once you have a, once you have a, a, a basic Linux server, if you don't want to start with any of the, pre-configured solutions, I guess. Like you don't want to start with a Nextcloud instance or, or Home Assistant. You just want to start with bare Linux. I would say start with a simple web server. Get that up and running. Um, understand how to make exceptions in the firewall and how to uh, start and stop the service and restart the service and enable to start on, on startup. Those kinds of little steps will get your feet wet enough that when you start moving into other projects, um, they will make sense and you'll understand how to kind of dig into them. Um, FreeNAS is a great example of an application that you can just flash onto an operating system and it can be a, it can be a major solution for you and your family. You have a place to store videos and photos. And again, all of that's going to walk you through the, the UI because it's, it's a web UI. And so it's, it's very approachable. It's very easy. Um, and then from there, you know, from once you have a file server, you can really start to build your empire, right? And no matter what you're doing, you want to learn those basic things, things like storage, things like IP addresses, um, and and managing rules and so on and so forth. And so that would be my recommendation is is, is kind of start slow. And uh, and we'll have links to some of those projects in the show notes. You can check those out at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our third email comes in from Ben. Ben writes in and says, hello, no, you had a caller last episode who was having trouble running Caden Live. I've had issues in the past too, and what worked well for me was running Caden Live app image. I believe I downloaded it from the Caden Live website. The caller might want to give that a try. Thanks, Ben. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I've not personally run the app image, but if um, that works for other people, it's something we want to spread around. Our pick of the week this week is Yacht. Uh, the goal here is making Docker containers easy to use for everyone. 
And I've I've recently started getting into Docker, and we're starting to move some of uh, some of the uh, our hosted services at AltaSpeed over to Docker. And I'll be honest, it's a little daunting to get your head wrapped around it first. And so this project aims for a simple management UI with templates, one-click deployments. Now this is an alpha project, so this is not something you're going to want to run out and put real data on. I mean, you can put real data on it, but just make sure that you're backing it up. Um, and but they they concentrate on a very nice UI. In fact, he's calling it a beautify UI framework. The basic container management is there. The template framework is there. Uh, in the future, they're going or excuse me, centralized settings for volume management is there. In the future, they're going to incorporate the ability to edit or modify containers, um, container monitoring, and easy to access container interfaces as well as user management. Now, the developer reached out to me and he said, here's what I'm working on. And it, like I say, it dovetails really nicely with some of the other projects we're working on at AltaSpeed. And so I've been looking at his project and we're going to take it for a trial run in our sandbox. And I've, I've reached out to him and said, hey, you know, would you want to come hang out in the program and share in more detail about your project and its goals? And he said he wants to do that. So we'll have, uh, we'll have his GitHub page linked in the show notes. You can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. But the project is Yacht, a, uh, an easy to use web UI for uh, for container management. This is very, very cool. Uh, our gadget of the week is the Vonitz VAP11G300. Now, this is a wireless bridge repeater. Um, essentially, it acts as a Wi-Fi card for things that don't have Wi-Fi card. So that's really useful. You can use it for things like game consoles. At AltaSpeed, though, we had a client recently that had the Wi-Fi chip in his smart TV died. And I'm not a big fan of smart TVs to begin with, be precisely because stuff like this fails, and then your what should be a $2,000 TV is otherwise useless if you can't get in there to repair this card, which we couldn't do. So this device kind of is uh, is a is kind of a stopgap solution. Um, but it, essentially, the way it works is you connect to its Wi-Fi. You power it up the first time, and it has a little Wi-Fi connection, and you connect to it. And then, no matter what page you open up, you're redirected to their login page. And in the sign-in, you tell it uh, what you want your SSID, what you want it to connect to, and then it spits out a little Ethernet cable on the other end of it um, that you can plug into a device, and that device then is connected to the same network that the Wi-Fi adapter is connected to, which works really well. Um, my only gripe with it was I, I really wish the Ethernet connector was a female. Um, it's got this short little like six inch, eight inch long thing and, and it wasn't actually going to work for us. And so we had to use a barrel connector, but then that didn't really work right. Why not just put a female connector there? But other than that, um, I did look inside of the web UI. They have a firmware updater, gone to the website and looked at, um, their firmware updates. We'll see how often it turns out to be true that they issue updates, but we'll watch it. Um, but the, the device works surprisingly well. Again, it's the Vonitz VAP 1100G. 300 uh, wireless repeater bridge. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. Check those out. In the news this week, the XDA developers, uh, famous for the XDA-developers.com site, are releasing a phone. They're partnering to release a phone, a limited edition device, with device available for $639. They're offering it at a discounted rate for people that want to, uh, I believe it's uh, 29% off for people that want to uh, purchase it early at $599. Um, so this is really cool. It is a device uh, that they're offering with both Ubuntu Touch 
and Lineage OS. And they've got a really fantastic video that actually explains this. You don't even have to actually be able to see the video to really, uh, to really understand what they're getting at. So we're just going to pull that up and, uh, and roll it. Introducing the Pro One X, a smartphone designed to put you back in control. Brought to you by FX Tech and XDA. The Pro One X is the world's first consumer smartphone to run Lineage OS out of the box. The platform that gives you control. Control over your data, control over your privacy, and control over your software. The truth is, smartphones don't give their users a whole lot of choice when it comes to software. Like us, you're probably tired of being forced to share your location history or having apps on your phone listening to your conversations or tracking everything you do. But it doesn't have to be like this. At Tech, we want everyone to have this deeper level of control and choice on their smartphone. So we've chosen two of the most secure and open OSs in the industry, Lineage OS or Ubuntu Touch OS. The Pro One X is the world's first consumer smartphone to run Lineage OS out the box, offering the pure Android experience that many of us love while giving you the power to control how much information is shared with the apps you use. The phone's privacy guard allows you to manage app permissions and root access so you can keep your private life private. For Ubuntu users, the Pro One X is the most powerful Ubuntu Touch smartphone ever made. Thanks to a Qualcomm chipset, it runs the interface super smoothly and seamlessly transitions from a smartphone to a fully functional desktop. Simply plug it into your monitor and experience Ubuntu like never before. And sometimes you just can't beat a physical keyboard. Whichever platform you choose, you get to enjoy our unique split-screen multitasking experience and the power of 64 keys at your fingertips. We've also increased the RAM and storage while keeping the best features our community loved about the Pro One. I love the aluminium body. The so what, you know, I was super excited when I first saw this. And, you know, we already have Librem competing in the space. We already have Pine competing in the space. Um, and so to watch XDA kind of come out and back this and say, hey, we're going to partner up to make the Pro One. And then we're going to offer a Ubuntu Touch on it. That was, man... It, you, you really start to see the same message from uh, users, and that is that they want a device that they can trust and that they can put an operating system on. And so I reached out to Dalton Durst and I said, hey, you know, how, what do you think of this device? And he said, hey, this is really exciting. We're really excited for the build quality of this thing. We're really excited. It really packs a punch for the, for, you know, for the amount of money it is. Um, and, and I said, is it secure? Can we trust it? He said, yeah, you know, Ubuntu Touch is the same Ubuntu Touch everywhere. And so it has the same confinement store. It has the same software store. Um, and so they're running Ubuntu Touch via the Hybris method. Uh, and it, he said that there's, there's a lot of people that are going to be looking uh to, to, to run a mainline Linux kernel on uh, on on these devices, but it's just not possible right now. And so you're you're at the moment you're stuck uh, running these cl- closed source drivers, Android devices, um, to be able to talk to the hardware, and that's that's as good as it gets right now. Um, so with that in mind, then. Uh, if the only thing that I could tell from him or in the conversation that we had that was more open source would have been the Pine phone. And he said that's obviously because they are running, um, you know, the, the operating system and they're building the phone. So it's a little bit, little bit closer. Um, but yeah, this is a really exciting, 
development and the fact that this was f- overfunded by 187% of their $75,000 goal uh, tells us that this is a device that people want. one 855 that's 855-450-6624. The email, live at com. Zach calls from North Carolina. Hi, Zach. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Zach from North Carolina. Going once. Going twice. Thanks for the call. We'll move on to John. Uh, John calls. Uh, we don't know where John calls from. John, you're on the air. Good uh, Good afternoon. Oh, hey, uh, John Swinton, actually. Um, hey, Noah. Um, so I was playing Xbox earlier, and I got this um, message. And this kid said he was going to uh, fry or DDoS my router. What does that mean? Uh, so uh, so a, a DDoS is a distributed denial of service attack. And so it's an attack in where somebody tries to send traffic um, to your router to the point that uh, you can't, that that router locks up or that service fails. Um, and so there are a couple of different protections that you can have against it, but ultimately you're, you're at the mercy of whatever your edge device is. Does it have the processing capability of handling and rejecting those requests? Do you have oh, like yeah. do you have like a consumer grade router or do you have um do you have uh something like a PF I sensor? Think, I think it's just No, I think it's just like a normal uh I'm not sure what it is, but he also he sent me um hold up. What do you think? Let me see if I can bring it up real quick. Um he sent me like these numbers of like one point nine two point something point something like what is that exactly? Uh, that's probably an IP address, and it's the address that's assigned to computers um, to help you locate them across the internet. Um, but in, in any event, what I, what I would do, John, is I would uh, if you you I would I would look into your router, make sure that you're able to log into that router, and if your router has any sort of uh, firewall functionality, you want to make sure to have that on. If it's in your budget to uh, to upgrade that router. I would highly suggest doing that and maybe putting in something like a PF Sense. It'll be a fun thing to play with, and, and you can learn a little bit more about um, IP addresses and networking and those kinds of things. And ultimately, at the end of the day, if nothing else works, you can always get your ISP involved and say, hey, you know, there's, there's somebody that's, that's um, being malicious, and, you know, what kind of help can you provide, provide for me? And, and if nothing else, they can probably help do things like change your IP address and stuff like that. So at least that person has a little bit more difficult time finding you um hope that helps give us a call 855-450 no it's 855-450-6624 the email live at asknoahshow.com brad calls from grand forks north dakota hey man welcome in hey man i know you know who i am um but i was i was curious you were talking about the ubuntu touch and, and some of these various devices you know that i've kind of struggled to find a phone that i like as good as i like my iphone but not as insecure as my iphone I was wondering if you could kind of talk a little bit about how Ubuntu Touch is is becoming more user-friendly, because that's where I always fall down. I'm kind of a moron. I don't do well with, well with technology as I would like. So, like, that's kind of my question. Like, I love the simplicity and the, the, uh, the, the user interface of, like, an iPhone, but I would love to have something more secure because I'm starting to get more and more concerned about that as I get more and more involved in the tech world. Yeah, I, I guess here's where I would start, Brad. I, I would start with uh, I would start with something like a companion device. You know, like don't depend on it if you do, because the problem with it is right now, like we we depend on things like 
Uber apps and banking apps and, and social media apps or even work apps, right? Like it's not really practical to, to just throw in the towel right today. And I don't, and I don't think any of the th- those third party options offer that. But you know, the thing is, I found like even just having a Sailfish OS device, just a second device that I have around me, it's nice one because it allows me to just kind of disconnect when I'm not getting work messages. I'm not. And then the only thing that I can get access to is, is the, is the communication things that I want on there. Even that's nice. But then on top of that, yeah, the added security of being like, okay, now I am comfortable storing things like my social security number and banking information and stuff like that, because I know it's not going to sink across the internet or wind up in somebody else's hands. Right. Awesome. That was, yeah, that was exactly, I guess, what I was, was curious about. Cool. Thanks for the call, man. one 450 no It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Zach uh, calls us back. Hey, Zach, uh, welcome back. We got you connected this time. Hello. Hi, Zach. Hey. Um, so, me and my boyfriend were in college, and we've been wanting a computer to play games on for mm-hmm. a long time now. But, um, you know, we're in college, and money is tight. Um, so, I was at the mechanic shop getting my car fixed recently, since I crashed into a parked SUV and stuff um, a few weeks back. So, when I went to go pick up my car today, uh, The mechanic mentioned to me how he checked on the car's computer. And uh, now I, like, I never knew that there was a PC in the car. Well, it's not that kind of PC. Uh, It's it's a different kind of PC. That. The, the kind of computer he was referring to is probably what's known as an OBD2 uh, computer, and it's the computer that, that controls things. Now, some cars do, uh, Zach, have the opportunity to feed different video inputs into them and so, uh, or, or flash different firmware onto them. And so there, there are, you, do, you may have the opportunity to do that, but you'd have to work specifically with your manufacturer. There's also a safety issue involved because on a lot of those, they have the ability to display video, but they'll, they'll block it uh, uh, any time the car's in motion and stuff like that and so then there's some workarounds that you have to do but i don't know what the legality of any of that stuff is so you'd have to look into it but it's certainly possible i just i don't have the answer for you here in the air i'm sorry 1-855-450 no it's 855-450-6624 the email live at asknoahshow.com noah calls from ohio uh hey noah welcome to the ask noah show um hey noah it's uh, me i don't know if you remember me or not i'm a returning member from the talknoahshow.com about two weeks ago. You know, time flies, huh? one 855 no it's 855-450-6624. The email, live at com. That is the number to join us. So there is a study that came out this week. It shows which messengers leak your data and drain your battery. We'll have the link for you, podcast.asknoahshow.com. When a sender includes a link in a message, the app will often display a conversation along with uh, the text, usually a headline and images that accompany the link. First, the app has to connect to the server that the link leads to and ask for what's in the link. This is referred to as the get request. In order for the server to know where to send back the data, the app includes your phone's IP address for get requests. Now, the researchers behind Monday's report, which I'm going to try and get right here, Talal Hajj and Bakari and Tommy Misk, found that Facebook Messenger, Instagram were the worst offenders. And then they have a chart. Both apps download and download and copy a linked file in its entirety, even if it's gigabytes in size. Again, this may be a concern if the file is something the users want to keep private. It's also problematic because the apps can consume vast amounts of bandwidth and 
battery reserves. Both apps also run any JavaScript containers in the link. That's problematic because users have no way of vetting the security of JavaScript and can't expect messengers to have the same exploit protections as modern browsers. Hodge Bakery and Misk reported their findings to Facebook, and the company said that both apps work as intended. LinkedIn performs only slightly better, and its only difference was that rather than copying files of any size, it copied only the first first 50 megabytes. Discord, Google Hangouts, Slack, Twitter, and Zoom also copy files, but they cap the amount of data anywhere from 15 to 50 megabytes. And there's a chart that actually breaks all of this out. We'll have that for you at uh, podcast.asknoahshow.com. You're welcome to check that out. Um, but overall, the study was good news. And uh, they conclude that because it showed that most messaging systems are doing it right. For example, Signal, Thema, TikTok, and WeChat all give users the options of receiving no link previews uh, for truly sensitive messages and users who want as much privacy as possible. This is the best setting. Even when previews are provided, these apps are using relatively safe means to render them. Um, and so I, I, this is eye-opening at the same time. It's nice to have actual articles to link to when you're having conversations about privacy. And that's primarily why I'm including these in the show is we have this conversation about privacy. We have these conversations about what apps are doing things and how much do we trust apps and how much do we trust the phones. It's nice that some people are actually taking the time to dig through what these apps are doing on your phone, what data they're collecting, where they're sending it to. It's nice to know that Facebook has a copy of every file you've ever sent. That's something you should be aware of. Uh, and as, as, excuse me, every link you've ever sent if it links to a file that can be downloaded. I mean, that's 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 borderline crazy. Um, so it's good to know. Uh, also in security news, Hugo Shu, a developer of the Nano Adblock and Nano Defender extension, said 17 days ago that he no longer had the time to maintain the project, and so he sold the rights to the versions available in Google Google's web store. Uh, Shu told... Uh, Shu said that Nano Adblocker and Nano Defender, which often install together, have about 300,000 installations total. Four days ago, Raymond Hill, the maker of uBlock Origin extension upon which Nano Adblocker was based, revealed that the new developer had rolled out updates that added malicious code. The first thing that Hill noticed was the extension was checking. To, now get this. The first thing the extension was doing was checking to see if the user had opened the developer console. If it was open, the extension sent a file titled report to the server at dev dot, excuse me, def dot dev dash nano dot com. In simple words, the extension remotely checks whether or not you're using the extension dev tools, which is what you would do if you wanted to find out what the extension was doing. So this is like massively problematic, right? The most obvious change end users noticed was that it infected browsers while automatically issuing likes for a large number of Instagram posts with no input from users. Surreal Gorillas, Gorillas, a artificial intelligence and machine researcher at the University of California in San Diego, said his browser liked more than 200 images on an Instagram account that didn't follow anyone. Uh, Nano Adblocker and Nano Defender aren't the only extensions that have been reported to tamper with Instagram accounts. User Agent Switcher, an extension that had more than 100,000 active users until Google removed it earlier this month, is also reported to have done the same thing. And so, again, I highlight the story for a couple of things. First of all, 
If you have an extension, you might consider removing it unless you know something about that extension. I have, I think, a grand total of two extensions. And one I trust implicitly, that's Bitwarden. The second one, I've done as much research as I can on it, and that's my dark reader extension. But I don't know. I just can't deal with light web pages. Um, but it's a reminder to us that extensions are potentially dangerous. In a lot of cases, we are treating browsers like many operating systems. And from a data standpoint, that's absolutely true. And the so for the security uh, of the extensions must match the security of your system. And so you want to be careful about what extensions you're, you're loading. By the way, if anybody has um, a recommended way or, or, uh, or, or a tip and trick on, on how they go about vetting extensions, it's something I've looked at and, and looked through, but it doesn't seem like there's one central cohesive place that people talk about these extensions often enough that it can apply. And, it, you know, really it depends on what browser you're on and all, and all, all of those kinds of things. So is there, is there a solution in there somewhere? Uh, let me know live at asknoahshow.com. Dot com. Uh, snap improvements. By default, snaps are packaged as a compressed read-only squash FS file using the XZ algorithm. Uh, this results in a high level of compression, but consequently requires more processing power to uncompress and expand those file systems for use. On the desktop, users may perceive this as slowness, the time it takes for the application to launch. But this is also far more noticeable on first launch. Uh, before the application data has had a chance to cache in memory. Subsequent launchers are typically faster, and there's little difference compared to traditional packaged applications. To improve the startup time, they decided to test di a different algorithm, the LZO algorithm, which offers lesser compression but needs less processing power to complete the action. As a test case, they chose the Chromium browser, StableBuild 85.x. They said they chose this because they believe it's a highly representative case for several reasons. One, the browser is a ubiquitous and popular application. It also has a lot of frequent use, and so any potential slowness is likely to be noticed. Two, Chromium is a relatively large and complex application. Three, it's not part of any specific Linux desktop environment, which makes the testing independent and accurate. So for comparison, the XZ compressed snaps was 150 megs, whereas the one using LZO compression was 250 megs in size. They conducted the testing using a wide range of systems built between 2015 and 2020. Um, they included HS, uh, regular hard drives, solid-state drives, NVMe storage. They tested both Intel and NVIDIA graphics, as well as several operating systems. The operating systems they tested include Kubuntu 18.04, Ubuntu 20.04, uh, Ubuntu 20.10, and, uh, which was at pre-release as of that writing, and uh, Fedora 32, just before the release of Fedora 33, which we're going to get to later. Uh, the native package, where available uh, in Kubuntu 18.04 and Fedora 32, uh, the snap with XZ compression on all systems and the snap with LZO compression on all systems. The result, the LZO compression was 40 to 74% cold store startup improvement over the XZ compression. On the Kubuntu 1804 system, which still had the Chromium available as a dev package, the LZO compression snap was offered near identical startup performance. And on the Fedora 32 workstation, the LZO compressed snap cold start faster than the native RPM package at a respectable 33%. Hot startups are largely independent of the packaging format selection. Um, so, uh, you know, this was, uh, I like that Snap is making progress. I like the fact that while I was doing my test on uh, Fedora this week, that I was able to, uh, I was able to get my, 
I was able to get certain software running because it was only available as a snap package. And I was able to install SnapD and then I was able to uh, in- install software. Um, but the only official builds of snap packages are Canonical Store. And the only known implementation of the Snap Store is Canonical's Store. And so if a person rewrote a decent amount of SnapD, then and then the entirety of the back end, then it would be possible to have a community resource that uh, points and has additions and you could, you know, share that with everybody else. But right now, and then at that point, is that you're not even talking about SnapD anymore. Now you're talking about an entirely different fork of the Snap project. And so, I, I again, I, I think that Canonical has done a better outreach job of getting people onto the Snap packaging formats. And I think because of that, it offers a better end user experience. And so if you're looking for, for if you're looking for the easiest way to get software on any distro and we start to look at universal packaging to do that, um, here's a shining example. I have a brand new Fedora machine and I wanted software that wasn't available on Fedora and I was able to get it because of Snap packaging. And that's only possible because of the work that Canonical is doing. At the same time, if you want the technologically superior packaging solution and if you want the one that is you know the one that we it seems like we should be talking about but we're not um then that's flatpak and my experience on flatpak this week has been absolutely fantastic uh but with that i have a pc that is carefully curated as my personal computer and it it doesn't have any work stuff on it. in fact the only thing that exists on this computer uh is are, are the very specific pieces of software packages that I need to do some some really some really critical work stuff and some really critical personal stuff but that's my baby and uh and I usually tell people to wait a few weeks before they upgrade to Fedora but I was just I was in a burn to get my hands on it and then I started reading Matt's release announcement and he says Fedora Workstation focuses on the desktop, and in particular, it's geared towards software developers who want a just works Linux operating system experience. And then I thought back to my little baby that's downstairs that I carefully curate and upgrade year for year, and Fedora has served me well for many, many years. That's exactly what I'm going for. And so replace developer with system administrator, and now all of a sudden... I'm on the, that's me. I'm their target audience. Right. And so I, I, I took the best computer, best laptop I had access to and uh, wiped it clean and did a fresh install of Fedora uh, 33. Now I've run Kubuntu on my laptop because first of all, I don't really care what distro I run. Show me how to use a package system and help me with any weirdness, getting my chosen desktop environment. And then I'm good. Like they're all good. Right. The second thing is Customers tend to have Ubuntu. They tend to run Ubuntu, and if we install something for them, we tend to install it with Ubuntu because that's where the largest community support is, whether we like it or not. And so uh, it's good for me to understand how the workflows work in Ubuntu, and I'm not a big GNOME fan, and so I've, I've wound up on Kubuntu. But when I sat down with the Fedora 33 installer, the... The installer alone had had a, had a great look and and kind of an inviting feel that I just kind of got sucked in, and then GNOME started making me jealous again, and they really nailed the dark theme because in Kubuntu, while everything is dark, and I really like uh, Breeze Dark, uh, there are certain windows that just they don't they don't respect the color theme. I still can't get Inkscape to work right. I don't know why, but in in GNOME, work flawlessly. Every window looks flawless. I mean, that's just the way the GTK works. It's minimal. It's basic. It's out of my way. It's snappy. And you can feel that in the desktop environment. And that's decidedly something I just, I don't have on Kubuntu. The cascading, and I don't know exactly when this changed, but the cascading has gone from a distraction to a much more polished overview. And I, 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 you know, it really, it, it, it allows you to multitask without 
getting completely sidetracked um, when you accidentally bump the, the super key. I switched to KDE because I really got into twisting all of the knobs and bells. And when I came back to Gnome, and I've just been kind of living in it the past few days, uh, what I've what I've kind of I kind of feel like I'm home again, and that it's the desktop that just works, uh, you know. And then I went to minimize a window, and then kind of went down from there. But um, the Lux decryption field is fantastic. When the laptop boots up again, uh, the way that this is presented, if you're looking at it from a new user's perspective, everything guides the user through through the installation, through the boot up process. And instead of having a tiny little window down at the bottom that's obscure and you don't really know what it's asking for, it you know it has a Fedora logo, it has a little encryption key, uh, it, it has the same uh, little icon that you set, when, that they displayed when you set the password. All of this just kind of, if I was a new user, would kind of walk me through what Fedora is expecting me to do. And it follows my, my line in the sand, uh, check to see if I'd recommend a distro to a new user. And that's if, if the user doesn't have anything more than their name, where they live, what time it is, can they install your distribution? And the answer to that definitively is yes. Um, in fact, the laptop that I was testing on had some, uh, had a different operating system installed on it before. And, uh, when we, when I loaded the, the, uh, the Fedora USB stick, it automatically reprovisioned the disc again, using ButterFS as default, uh, and then just told me, Hey, you, I can't, actually install on the available disk size. So you're going to have to delete some partitions or reclaim space. Clicked on that and it, it went through and just worked. Um, the copper repository, in my opinion, is a must. I really like the fact that when I first uh, log in to Fedora, I get that welcome message and it, and it walks me through uh, the steps of getting comfortable with my computer. Inside of the software center, uh, enabling third-party repositories, you don't have to click in and drag everything. They just turn them all on. Uh, that I really appreciated and liked. It popped, Gnome Software popped up and asked me, actually, if I wanted to enable third-party repos. I clicked yes. I'm not sure why that, why that didn't set them all there. But uh, Copper was great. RPM Fusion was great. Um, in the third-party uh, repository section, I clicked on install. I installed uh, the, all, all of the repositories. And then I went to play a video and uh, double-clicked on an MKV, which as a new user, I would do. And the video just didn't play. And it said that I needed a, another uh, Kodak. Uh, in fact, I think I have the exact error message that popped up. And, uh, but when I clicked on it and said, okay, I understand, I'll, I'll, it offered to take me to a page and said that I, it, it would fix it for me. So I click on that. It brings me back into GNOME Software Center uh, where it couldn't find any package to install. It said, and then, uh, uh, but the video started playing in the background. And then I closed the whole process out, tried it again, same thing happened. So I'm not really sure what that was about. It was, it was a small bug, but the video still played and, uh, and all my MP3 still played. The other thing uh, that was really fantastic is as a system administrator, one of the things that's helpful to me is to know what's immediately available on the network. The second I connected to my Wi-Fi network inside of the GNOME file manager, all of my Samba shares are popping up. Uh, and when I type in an IP address uh, to, to browse that share, instantly that becomes available. Uh, and that's how I was able actually to test things like videos and MP3s and stuff. And so uh, those things worked really, really well, uh, as did Thunderbolt. Amazing how fast GNOME picked that up. Um, in fact, I might say the GNOME experience on Thunderbolt was a little bit better than the KDE experience. Simply authorizing a dock 
Um, it didn't require any intervention on my part, whereas in KDE I had to fiddle with it a little bit. Um, now there are different laptop brands I hadn't, you know, I haven't tried uh, Kubuntu um, on this particular laptop, so there may be a brand, maybe it's just a difference between the way that HP and Lenovo implements, um, but it worked flawlessly. Uh, Thunderbolt support. And it's great to see that because especially in today's day and age where people are working more and more at home, uh, that's a really, in, uh, that's a really important thing for us to, uh, to, to get right. Um, before we end today, I want to give the last few minutes to my friend and producer, executive producer, JT. Welcome to the program, sir. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Hey, so, uh, you and I, we have a long, long history. I think the first time I met you, JT, it was over a discussion uh, uh, regarding sleeping on the floor, which of all weird things, but that that was our first Linux Fest together. And since then, you and I have have developed a very close friendship and a, and a close professional working relationship together. And we've been to Red Hat and pretty much every Linux conference under the sun together. Um, and you're, you've uh, you've been producing Ask Noah. You were a producer for Linux Action Show, producer of Linux Unplugged. And now you're taking the next step, JT. You're starting your own shows. It's called The Opinion Dominion. Talk about that show. What is the show? How did the show come to existence? Why did you start it? Yeah, so like you mentioned, we've known each other for a very long time. I think we actually met in 2014, so you know it's it's been a while. And from traveling to different conferences, of course, I, I there's people I run into at multiple conferences, and I become friends with them, and we stay in touch during the year. And one of these people was a friend of mine, Jeff Probst. Uh, he went goes to Self. Uh, you've met him yourself there. Um, and we we have conversations all year long about technology, about how technology affects our lives, about different things. And then when we get to Self, of course, we have these conversations in person. And at one point, we were just, you know, shooting the breeze. And the question came up of, you know, I was talking to somebody else and they wanted to know about our conversation. And it was like, well, we have these conversations all the time. Why are we just not hitting a record button and recording the conversation so that other people can then, you know, if they have something to say, they can get into it. So that's where the Opinion Dominion concept came from was just we're having conversations that we enjoy. And when we reference these to other people, they seem interested. So we're just hitting the record button. I love that. I love the format of the show. And I love what you're able to achieve, JT, because what you're doing is going out and giving a voice to the people that the real mover and shakers, the people that are behind that you don't hear them because they're not the PR person. They're not the person that uh, that has all of the media interviews, but they're interesting people. And the truth is the Linux community is great precisely because of the people that are in it. What kind of content can people expect from the Opinion Dominion? What kind of people are you going to get on there? What kind of questions are you going to ask? What kind of information is going to come out of this? So the Opinion Dominion is kind of a show without much framework. Uh, our big key for us is feedback. We want about 30% of the show to be responding to listener feedback. So when we have a topic, people can then email into the show give their input, and then we can have that on the air. So it's not just Jeff and I, but it's Jeff and I and the community. Uh, right now, Jeff and I are just kind of talking about issues and things that have come up that we've talked about in the past or have been pressing uh, in the news. We do plan to have a whole bunch of people on for interviews. And as far as who, pretty much anybody. Uh, we're not just looking for the big names. We're looking for anybody who's doing something interesting and has a unique opinion or perspective on open source or some segment of technology that we don't normally hear. 
Uh, I'm a strong believer in that when you're exposed to different ideas and more ideas, it, it helps you kind of open up your mind and it sometimes can change the way you see a whole bunch of things. And we really want to cultivate that. And this actually dovetails into uh, a second show that I'm doing as well, which is Open Source Voices. Now, that show is a little different because it's actually a show I wanted someone else to make so I could listen to. But over the years, you know, as you mentioned, I've done a lot of, of production for different Linux podcasts. It hasn't really fit in with the other shows that were going on. And I didn't feel right in trying to go to somebody who ran a show and be like, hey, your show's great and all, but how about you just throw all that to the side and mm. do this over here? Obviously, that's mm -hmm. not right. Mm -hmm. um, so after, you know, doing this for going on seven years now, I, I kind of got to a point where there's a end credit scene of one of the Marvel movies, I forget which one, where Thanos goes into the vault on Asgard to get the gauntlet, and he says, fine, I'll do it myself. And that was kind of the attitude I have for this show, is like, this is the show I want to listen to, but nobody's making it. Fine. I'll make it so I can listen to it. That's so, awesome. This is a show where I am doing one-on-one -on -one interviews with people in Linux, open source. I also plan to get people from the Unix side on as well talking about how they came and got involved in open source. Because one thing that always fascinates me is when I go to a conference and you sit down with somebody after all the sessions are over, you're just hanging out in the hallway talking to them and hearing how they got to where they are in open source. Like, mm -hmm. yes, I know you're at a conference, you're giving a talk about this and it was a great talk and I know you're smart, but why did you get involved in, in Linux? What was your first point of where you heard about Linux and what did you think about it at first? And, how did you go from the person who just heard about it to now you're developing software for it? I always find those conversations at conferences to be fascinating. But obviously, with the state of the world these days and, and human malware that's going around, uh, we can't, we, I don't get as much of that in conferences. So I'm like, well, everybody's now used to having conversations online. It's just part and parcel of the way most people in technology work now. So nobody has an excuse to say, well, I don't really want to have a conversation over the Internet. So now's a prime time where I can really start having these conversations with people and sharing them with the greater community because, of course, as you and I know, the amount of people that can go to conferences is very small compared to the overall landscape. So this is a way to share that with everyone else. What kind of technology are you going to concentrate on? One of the things that's been fascinating to me existing in this world is the kind of content that Jupiter Broadcasting covers is just different from the kind of content that we cover on Ask Noah, and that's different from the kind of content that's covered on Destination Linux, different from the kind of content that you're going to cover on Open Source Voices. What aspects of technology are you, cons are you focused on? Are you focused on the enterprise? Are you focused on the developers? Are you focused on the people around the projects? So with open source voices, I'm specifically focused on the human side of it, the individual people themselves and why their journey through technology from, oh, this is something cool to this is what I want to spend my life doing. That is the focus of open source voices. Now, with the opinion dominion, it's the complete opposite side of the spectrum, and it's pretty much anything and everything that comes up that Jeff and I think there's a, a worthy conversation to have. For instance, just the other week, we had a conversation on a DARPA project using AI as a potential replacement for pilots in air combat scenarios. So that show is definitely running the gamut of 
any any particular area of technology open source. We want to focus primarily on the open source side, but if there's stuff that happens in the proprietary side, we also want to cover that as well if it does affect us. Let me ask you this. Jeff is a great co-host for you, and you guys kind of did your debut over at Southeast Linux Fest. Talk about some of the projects and the behind-the-scenes connections that you've made with Jeff and why he's the perfect co-host for you. Oh, why he's the perfect co-host? Well, in one way, because he's as snarky and sarcastic as I am, and we can play off each other well by just constantly picking on the other person. That always makes for an entertaining listen. Um... Jeff and I, we come from two very different backgrounds, but we also have very similar views on a lot of things. But then, of course, because we come from two different backgrounds, we have very different views on things. So for that show, and of course, you know, the namesake of the show is The Opinion Dominion. It's about, you know, opinions. I wanted someone who I got along with, had a lot in common with, but also didn't have a lot in common with as well. So that there was that contrast. So it wasn't just... Two people with the same views, with the same thoughts, talking about something. I, there's many times in shows where we'll disagree with each other, and then that opens up a broader conversation that we can have, and then the listeners can hear and then respond back to after hearing contrasting opinions. Um, for Southeast Linux Fest, that was kind of a, hey, you know, it would be fun type of thing. Uh, as most people know that know me well, I definitely have a thing for retro software. And I have a lot of retro hardware. And so when we were trying to figure out what type of things we could do that people would find interesting for self, because it was going to be virtual this year, in talking with Jeremy, I was like, hey, we can do live installs. Like, we'll just grab a, you know, a distro off of my shelf, and we'll grab an old laptop, and we'll do an old install like it used to be back in the day and deal with what problems come up. And there were a lot of problems that night because that's the way things used to be. And it was interesting hearing from people during that live stream who had never experienced the way things used to be because they came to Linux in, you know, around 2010 or, or maybe later, and they weren't used to all the ways that things could go wrong back in, say, 2001 when you were trying to install a distro. So it was fun for Jeff and I because that was us getting back to our roots and dealing with the troubles and the messes that we were used to dealing with, but then also being able to see people who hadn't experienced that, how their reaction to, oh, wow, that was the way it used to be. Wow, things have really come a long way in Linux. His name is JT Pennington. He is the executive producer of the Ask Noah Show and now the host of the brand new podcast, The Opinion, Dominion, and Open Source Voices. You can find both of those podcasts at theopiniondominion.fireside.fm or opensourcevoices.fireside.fm. JT, any plans to expand, um, you know, fire up a website, any of that stuff, or is it just go wherever podcasts are are promoted and, and, and download and listen in? So right now we're, I'm just running the Fireside websites for them. Um, I mean, I might do something more in the future. I don't know. I don't really have time for it. I mean, to be honest, I don't really have time to do these two shows, but I managed to find the time anyway. So sure. we're going with it. Um, but I would say that's the best place to go for information. Um, of course, you can get the podcast on all the normal places that you would get your podcast feeds. Um, but yeah, that's probably the best resource is just to go to the website. If I do end up creating something else, I will then put it on there and link it to there. Very cool. You can learn about things like lugs in the time of Corona, AI, kill bots in the sky. Are they a problem? Interviews with Ruth Seeley, 
Hugh Blemmings, Matthew Miller from Fedora. JT, you're doing a fantastic job, as always. Always excited to see what you're following and can't wait to uh, to catch up with you in person at Southeast Linux Fest next year. Yeah, we should actually do something before that. For sure, for sure. Well, JT, you know you always have a, 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 an open invitation anytime on here. Again, the shows, The Opinion, Dominion, and Open Source Voices. You can find them where pod, where good podcasts are sold. Uh, or you can download them straight from the website, opensourcevoices.fireside.fm or theopiniondominion.fireside.fm. JT, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We'll get you back in the program soon. Thanks for having me, Noah. And with that, that will bring us to the end of this week's episode of The Ask Noah Show. Thanks for being here. Hey, if you want all of the articles and references that we use on the show, you can get them at podcast.asknoahshow.com. That is the resource doc. If you want to find out what's going on with us, follow us live on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. We'll be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central at asknoahshow.com. <laughs>